Let us bow our heads in prayer. Our God and our Father, we come before you once again, grateful for the day which has gone by, grateful that we could be here this morning to worship you together as a gathered body of Christ. Thank you that we can return once again this evening to join together in song, in prayer, and finally to end the day by sitting under the preaching of your word. We thank you for your word, which is truth, which is life to us, which convicts us, which strengthens and encourages us. And even as we turn to it this evening, we come expectant to be fed, we come expectant to be renewed and strengthened, equipped for the week that lies ahead. As we come before you this evening, Lord, we are mindful of the many needs that are represented here in this congregation, the needs which you know all too well, the needs which we sometimes are unable to share with one another. But we pray, Lord, that you would meet us at our point of need. We pray that you would heal those that are unwell in body, that you would be close to the brokenhearted, to those who grieve and are struggling emotionally and are going through trials, even at the start of a new year. Won't you be their comforter? Won't you renew their strength and their joy? We thank you for this congregation of families and children and individuals, men and women, that are committed to the means of grace. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remain united, that as we continue meeting together, we may not forget the gospel by which we have been saved. We pray that you would help us to be salt and light in the world that you have called us to work and live and move and have our being. We pray that you would strengthen us in our respective roles, be that as husbands or wives, fathers or mothers, children, brothers and sisters, friends. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to live faithfully in, in, in your presence. But as we live our lives, we would not live as though you are only present here on the Lord's day, but that we carry on our lives apart from you. Won't you make us aware of your presence daily in every moment? Won't you help us to depend upon you for life and living? Won't you help us to feed upon your flesh and to drink the blood of Christ? We pray that you would sustain us, that we would not only look to the material things for our sustenance, but that we would remember that we are in a spiritual battle and that we would put on the full armor of God, that as we engage in these spiritual battles day in and day out, you would give us the eyes of God to be able to see what is really going on. Won't you continue with us this evening even as we now turn to your word, as we begin to read it, and uh, reflect upon it, won't you strengthen us and encourage us and rebuke us through it? For we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians and chapter 2? Philippians and chapter 2. Um, this series, if I can call it that, has, has moved around quite a bit. It's moved from service to service. It's taken long breaks, uh, but we hope to finish it off uh, and continue through it in the, in the next few months, God willing. And so, though it may have been uh, a while since we looked at these verses, I hope and trust that these uh, verses that we'll be considering this evening would be encouraging to us. So we will uh, pick up at Philippians chapter 2, we'll read from verse 1 to 18, but we will be considering verses 12 to 18 together this evening. And you will recall that as the last time, perhaps, uh, if you remember, we were looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, through 11, and we, we considered the example of Jesus Christ, of how he humbled himself, though he was very God of very God, uh, he came down, he uh, took on the human flesh, and he lived in full obedience to God, even obedience to the point of death on the cross. And this is the humility, the attitude, the mind of Christ that Paul was calling the Philippians, and by implication calls us to live out uh, in that way. And so today we'll be considering, like I said, verses 12 to 18, in which Paul exhorts the Philippians to live out uh, their salvation, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So let us, con let us begin reading Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 18. The Bible reads, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, 
without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Here ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to it. So we read a longer portion of scripture, uh, again, just for the sake of context, and it's been a while since we looked at this passage together, and so I hope that refreshes our mind and, and just helps us to appreciate where we find ourselves uh, in this letter to the Philippians. When we consider salvation, we often think about it as a historic event, an event that took place either at some point in our lives uh, and also we make reference to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and that is correct. Uh, our salvation was purchased on the cross as Jesus died and he paid for our sins once and for all. But there is a particular point in which we believe uh, in this finished work of Jesus Christ and we, uh, we often make reference to that particular point. Uh, it's for this reason when someone asks you uh, to to share your testimony, you would say um, what events took place, maybe what sermon or book you read that brought you to a point where you're convicted of sin and you repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And so we often think about salvation in terms of a past event. We think that we were saved and, uh, and then we became Christians. But we would, as we think about it a bit more, we would acknowledge that salvation is also an ongoing process. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and then we also look to a future point when Jesus Christ will return and we ultimately be saved. So it's past, present, and future. And so what we see in our verses uh, this evening is that Paul is saying in uh, verse, <clears throat> verse 13, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And at the surface, this might seem like a contradiction of what Paul writes about elsewhere. Uh, Paul believes that salvation is a work of grace, that we contribute nothing to our salvation. There is nothing that we do to merit our salvation, and there is nothing that we contribute to ensure that we remain in Christ. And yet here, the emphasis seems to be that we have to do something. Work out your your salvation with fear and trembling. So is Paul contradicting himself? Obviously the answer to that question is no, he is not. Uh, we see here something that of, 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 of the doctrine of helping us understand uh, that yes, God is the one, he's the author of salvation, it's a work of God from beginning to end, uh, but there is a sense in which we have a responsibility. And so that's what we're going to spend our time unpacking this evening. In what sense can we say that salvation is a work of God from beginning to end, uh, but then why does Paul give this command to work out uh, your own salvation with fear and trembling? 
people have taken uh, this verse out of context and, and built doctrines upon it that we can lose our salvation uh, if we don't keep on working at it. Perhaps like a good figure, if you want to stay fit and healthy, you must go to the gym and work out, right? So if you don't work out, you'll put on a few pounds. And is that what Paul is saying here? Uh, others have taken it to mean that you, would, you could fall away if you, if you don't continue attending to the means of grace or continue working at your salvation. But Paul is not teaching us a works-based salvation. As we consider this passage, we're going to notice that what Paul is talking about is something of what we may call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. And what we learn from studying these verses is that the Christian life is a lifelong process. The Christian life is a lifelong process of growing in Christ-likeness. Sanctification is a lifelong process of growing and becoming more and more like Christ. And so I go back to the reality I spoke about, that we are saved, yes, but if you've been here, if you've been a Christian for some time, you know that who you are today is not the same, hopefully, as the person you were when you first got saved. But you are no more a Christian today than you were 5, 10, 15, 50 years ago, right? We have grown. We, we, we are convicted of our sins. And as we look back on our lives, sometimes we even get surprised. How was it that I used to live this way? How was it that I used to be ignorant of these truths that the scriptures are teaching us? And, and we can be grateful for this reality. Uh, sometimes people talk about how God is gracious to us, that it's not at the point when we become saved that we are given the full extent or full realization of our sinfulness, and that God reveals that to us with time. Because perhaps if we had the full weight of our own sinful condition, we would, would be totally depressed. We wouldn't be able to carry on because we would be so focused on how much is wrong, how far short we fall of God's standards. And so God is gracious to us in gradually revealing to us the areas of our lives uh, that need to be brought into conformity uh, to the image of Jesus Christ. I found a quote that was, was helpful by uh, Duncan Rankin, and he says, progressive sanctification is a synergistic effort involving both the work of God and the work of man. By his grace, God expects us to conform our progressive experience of the Christian life to our definitive status as his saints. And I know that's a mouthful, but like I said, we will, we will unpack this in greater detail. And so if sanctification is a lifelong process in a Christian's life, then there are three truths that we must remember along this journey. We must firstly remember that it is God who works in us. We must secondly remember the world in which we live, the world in which we live. And thirdly, and I'd say most importantly, we must remember the day of Christ. We must keep our eyes uh, forward, looking to the return of Jesus Christ. Many a time we can get bogged down in the details as we live in the Christian life and we struggle with sin and we, we struggle with self, uh, we struggle with one another, and, and you can become depressed if you just look around yourself. 
But we need to remember these three truths. We need to remember that God works in us. We need to remember the world that we live in. And thirdly, we must remember the day of Christ. So let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, remember the God who works in you. Remember the God who works in you. Look with me at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So let's take a look at this. I must say that we'll spend the bulk of our time on these verses because this, this has a central theme of what uh, the following verses deals with. So Paul here makes the link by, by starting with therefore. He links back to what we, we read earlier on. Uh, verses 10 and 11, uh, Paul has been saying that this name has been given, the name above every name has been given to Jesus Christ, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, as we look at that, uh, as we look at verse 10 and 11, we see that what Paul was talking about there is that there will come a time where not just Christians, not just believers will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but on the final day of judgment, when Jesus Christ returns, every knee will bow. So whether willingly or unwillingly, every knee will confess that, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Paul is making the connection in verse 12 that therefore, because this is a reality, because Jesus is going to come back and there will be no doubt that he is Lord, because of this reality, we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We must keep the day of Christ before us. And, and we will come back to that point later on. But he makes that point that we must remember. We must remember the day of Christ, and therefore we must work out our own salvation. Notice with me also in verse 12 that he says, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And so he's talking about the reality that they must continue living faithfully, not just to show uh, Paul that they're, they're being faithful to the word of God, but even when he's not there, they should realize that God is working in their midst. And so they are accountable to God, God who sees all things, God who is omniscient and omnipresent. He sees everything. He knows everything. And so even when the apostle Paul is not physically present, he knows what is going on. And so they tell so he is telling them, he's telling the Philippians to remember that God works in their midst. And it's, so it's not about people pleasing. Uh, it's not about living your life so that your pastor sees you or your brother or sister in church knows how faithful you are to Jesus Christ. But it's more about that God sees you. God sees you when you're in the coffee shop. God sees you when you're in the cubicle. God sees you when you're cooking dinner in the evening. God sees you at all times. And so while we must be accountable to one another, we must remember that we live before the face of God, as R.C. Sproul would remind us. We live before the face of God. He sees all things, and we must live in being conscious of this reality. But continuing with verse 12, we notice that he connects, Paul connects uh, obedience to working out your salvation 
with fear and trembling. And so he's saying that working out your salvation is a matter of obedience. As you have always obeyed, then we have the description in the middle there, and then we continue with the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a matter of obedience. It's not for the, the special Christians, not for those that are really serious about the things of God. This is a matter of obedience. If you are a Christian, you must continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as we think about this a bit more, we, we do want to keep the two aspects to it that, uh, that I read the quote about earlier on. There's the two sides to it. We are saved and we can never fall away. Uh, we must keep that doctrine before us. Like Jesus teaches us in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's good news. That's good news. Especially when we think about other world religions. And as I was studying this text, I couldn't help but remember my days as a Hindu. We never had assurance, no matter what you did, no matter how hard you worked. Uh, and even thinking back to the, the topic of fasting this morning, you know, we'd fast every week, twice a week. You do so much, you go on pilgrimages. Uh, the other day I was, um, I say the other day, but it's like three months ago, last year even. Um, Dirk and I were, were riding ch to church together, and he was asking me a bunch of questions, and it made me think about these pilgrimages that my family would go to every year or every other year. And I'm not kidding you, I was maybe 13 years old, and we had gone out to this remote part of India on a pilgrimage. We would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, so it's dark and it's cold, and we would go and line up with thousands of people. And we would queue up and it would be maybe nine o'clock or eight o'clock in the morning that we'd finally get into the temple. And there were so many people that you would just see the idol for like 10 seconds and then you'd be pushed out of the, of the temple. So imagine someone is traveling like 4,000 miles from Zambia. You fly all the way to India for 10 seconds and you feel good about yourself. Like I've done something, I'm a religious person, but then it doesn't take long before you start to doubt, like, am I really saved? Uh, you know, I need to do more. That's the reality of what people are living with. You think about Muslims and some of the customs that they have of, of you know, whipping themselves with chains and, and all these things, and they believe that makes them pious, makes them more godly. But there's no assurance in that. There is no confidence in that. But praise God that our confidence does not lie in our own efforts. But as this verse tells us, it's that we cannot be snatched from the Father's hand. The Father who created the universe, who is all-powerful, who can do all things, we are in his hands. And there's nothing that can take us away. Again, Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's amazing to have this comfort, to know that what Jesus Christ has achieved on the cross is final. And there's nothing we can do to add to it or to take away from it. And contrary to making us lazy, it should actually fire us up to live in obedience, to live lives of love and sacrifice and worship because of this great salvation that is already ours. And so we work out our salvation and not so much that we earn it or we, we try to assure ourselves that we, uh, we won't fall away. But it's as we reflect on truths such as these, as these realities begin to take shape in our hearts, that we are fueled to greater obedience. And as we see later on in the verses that follow, it is because God works in us. And there's a very interesting connection there. We see that verse 13, Paul says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work. In those two verses, notice the word work appears three times. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you to work for his good. And so I think back to Ezekiel. Let's talk about Ezekiel in our heads. <sighs> think back to Ezekiel and the valley of dry bones. The bones are dead, they're inanimate, they're unable to move. And then the breath of life is breathed upon them and they come to life. They're animated. This is what we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were brought to life. You've heard this over and over again. A dead person can't do anything. And so when we were spiritually dead, we couldn't do anything to obey God and to live out according to his word. Even our good works were as filthy rags before him. So it is God who works in us. He is the one who gives us conviction of sin. He is the one who animates us, brings us to life. The living God dwells within us. The Holy Spirit is within us. And he convicts us. He helps us to obey the word. He reminds us. He comforts us. He walks with us. We haven't been left as orphans in this world. As you remember Jesus' prayer before, uh, before he was crucified there in John chapter 17. He doesn't leave us as orphans. He left us with the Holy Spirit. And so if we are trusting, if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are indwelt by the Spirit and we're in, we animated by the Spirit. We were prior, we were previously dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised to life with Christ. And the very same Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. And this is what Paul was saying in Philippians in chapter 1, verse 7, verse 6, I'm sorry. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so he develops that thought further because we, we have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit and he 
lives within us, he convicts us, and he continues to work in us to bring us to conformity to the image of Christ, we can have confidence that he will not leave the work unfinished. He will not leave the work unfinished in our lives. And this is a great comfort for us as we wrestle with the sinful desires that we struggle with. So many times we think we're making progress, but even that very thought can be evidence of pride that has crept in. When we start to find confidence in our own deeds and our own righteousness, we can start to feel so discouraged. Am I really growing? Why is it that I still seem as immature in the faith as I was last year or five years ago? Am I really learning these doctrines? Do I really know God? Why do I struggle with prayer or fasting? Why can't I be loving to my brother or sister? Why can't I rejoice when something good happens to them? Why do I struggle with the spirit of envy and bitterness and jealousy? It's so easy to get bogged down in the details and, and feel like we're not moving forward. And so I don't want to underplay the conviction that this Holy Spirit brings in our lives, convicting us of our sin and, and, and causing us to, to repent. But at the same time, we don't want to get so discouraged that we're unable to be effective for God. Because we are reminded that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Many times we, we, we hear people trying to figure out what is God's will for my life? Who should I marry? What job should I take? Uh, how many children should we have? What school should I go to? Which house should we buy? There are so many questions. We, we're trying to determine what is the will of God. And we make distinctions in what the will of God is. But Romans chapter 12 verse, uh, verse 2 tells us that as we are transformed, we will be able to discern what the will of God is. As God works in us, he works in us to work out our own salvation, to live out our lives in accordance with his word, to do his will, but also to know his will. He works in us for his good pleasure. It's for his glory. It's because it brings him great joy when he sees his children living in obedience, but it's also because it is God who is glorified as we live out, live out our faith. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, remind us that, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so Paul is talking about sexual immorality in those verses, but he does remind us that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. And as we, as we live out our lives, we should do so to the glory of God. As we live in obedience, God is glorified. Lastly, before we move on to the next point, we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And this fear is, is the reverent fear, having an awe, a realization that it is God who is at work in our lives. 
Now, perhaps we don't think about that as much. We don't think that God is working in me. And, and we don't take our spiritual lives as seriously. But here Paul is reminding us that as we live, as we work out our salvation, we must remember that it is God who is working in us. And that should bring a sense of awe. It should bring a sense of fear. With our spiritual well-being, we should not take these matters lightly. We shouldn't take matters of prayer and spiritual disciplines lightly. So there are two sides to this. Yes, we cannot lose our salvation, but that should not make us lazy and apathetic about the things of God. Quite the contrary, it should fuel our desire to live in obedience to Him. It should give us a zeal to do what Scripture has commanded us. It should give us a desire and appetite to study the Word of God. Was again like Romans chapter 12, verse 1 reminds us that it is only as we study the word, as our mind is transformed, that we will know what God requires of us. And so we need to be in the word. It is a discipline. That is, that is why it's called a discipline. We need to keep working at it. There will be seasons when we are not doing as well, but that's where, that's where accountability comes in. We, we need to check up on one another. We need to also remember that we live before the face of God and that we must be accountable to him. So, again, we must remember these two aspects of this truth that, yes, we cannot lose our salvation, but Paul is, is here commanding us to work out our own salvation and remembering that it is God who works in us. Remembering that it is God who works in us. But in the second place, we must remember the world which we live in. Remember the world which we live in. And we'll look at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. It is interesting that Paul here is using language uh, from Exodus and language that was used of the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness as they continued to grumble against God. Uh, this is what Paul is making reference to. And it's interesting because uh, time and time again, the Israelites grumbled against Moses. Moses was used by God to deliver the people from Egypt. And he was their leader. He, he played the role of prophet, priest, and king. But the people constantly forgot what God had done for them through Moses. They continued to grumble. They, they were given manna and they complained. They were given meat and they complained. They continued to grumble against God. And so Paul is reminding the Philippians in a very important way that they should not Grumble. They should do all things without grumbling or questioning or grumbling and arguing, Others, other translations put it. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. And so we see that as the Philippians are living out their lives, their Christian lives, it's easy for them to begin to grumble. We are not told exactly what... Uh, the, Paul is referring to here, but we do know from other 
portions of this book that there were problems that were beginning to creep into the church. Uh, there were problems with unity. There was uh, disagreements among the women as Paul addresses, and he, he's striving for them to be united. But here in verse 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining or questioning. And, and there's a serious warning here, especially considering what we have, we have just looked at, that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What happens to the Israelites? The Israelites who complained, the Israelites who grumbled against God, what happened to them? Well, they all died in the wilderness. God judged them and God punished them. And so if we turn to Deuteronomy uh, very briefly, Deuteronomy and chapter 32, verse 5. And this is uh, the song of Moses as he reflects upon uh, what, what has happened. He says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so we'll, we'll come back to this verse in just a moment. But this helps us to appreciate the world in which we live in. Uh, but we should also briefly consider verse, uh, if you go over to Exodus, Exodus chapter 16 and verses 2 to 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So we see how the people grumbled against Moses. And later on, uh, as we read in Deuteronomy, they are, they are called, they are no longer the people of God because they grumbled, they complained against God, and they were finally all destroyed in the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. And so there's a serious warning that Paul seeks to uh, make to the Philippians here. That yes, you are saved, you are secure in Christ, but be weary of having this attitude of constantly grumbling against perhaps your leadership or grumbling against one another. And perhaps if he had just said, Do, uh, don't grumble, it may have been easier for us to to digest, but he says, do all things without grumbling. So does that mean I shouldn't grumble when things aren't going my way? That I shouldn't grumble when I haven't had enough sleep? That I shouldn't grumble when I get the short end of the stick? And the answer is yes. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. This reminds us of the reality that we continue to struggle with the sinful flesh. That while we are saved and we are secure in Christ, as we have already considered, we know that God is working in us. But on this side of eternity, we, we, we wrestle with the reality that we are still struggling with the flesh. We still continue to battle the flesh that lives within us. And so we need to be reminded of truths such as these, that we must do all things without grumbling or questioning. And that's where we go back 
to progressive sanctification. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He, he makes us question. He questions our attitudes, not just our outward behavior, but our thought life, how we, we think, how we feel. All of that, we, we are constantly reminded to turn to Scripture and to align our thoughts and our attitudes and our emotions to what Scripture has for us. And so as we are reminded of the world that we are living in, we firstly must remember that we wrestle, we continue to strive with this flesh that, that is still indwelling us. Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, or I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And this is the reality of living on this side of eternity. We will be frustrated. We, we are discouraged when we are not able to keep up those disciplines. But again, we are reminded that we, we are not trying to attain our salvation. We are already saved. But we must keep on working out our salvation. We must not get discouraged because we are still, uh, we are still, we've still got battles to rage against the flesh. But we have the Holy Spirit who is greater than our flesh, who is within us. And as we look back, we can, we can testify to God's goodness in how he has carried us over the years. And so we must keep these two realities as we think about our sanctification. We must keep these two realities before us. Yes, God works in us, but there is still indwelling sin that needs to be put to death. And we must yield to the Holy Spirit as he convicts us when we are convicted of sin, we must respond quickly. We must not delay. When we are told that we need to apologize or we need to make a lifestyle change, we must, we must obey the word of God quickly. If you hear the voice of the Lord today, you must repent. You must turn. So often we say we'll do it tomorrow. We, we'll do it when we are convinced further. But we need to be discerning. We need to be listening to the word of God. We need to be listening to the Spirit's convicting voice. And so if he convicted you this morning, for example, about fasting, why are you waiting for March? Why can't you fast this coming week? Why delay? Why not respond as you heard the word preached this morning? There are many other things. It might be something you read this past week. Why not respond quickly? Many times the devil capitalizes on our delays. We put it off. We say, we'll do it. We'll do it next week. We'll do it next week. And I don't remember where I read it or who said it, but tomorrow never comes. You never come to today and say, this is tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. And that is the lie that the devil sells to us. You'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow will never come. Today. Today is the day. But secondly, we, we think about the world that we are living in. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so the verse that we read from Deuteronomy is more applicable to, to this 
verse um, than the previous one where Moses is referring to the Israelites as a crooked and twisted generation because they did not, they continued to grumble and they were finally destroyed in the wilderness. But here Paul is referring to the, the world as the crooked and twisted generation among which we live. So he told us that we must do all things without grumbling or complaining or questioning and that you may be blameless and innocent. Again, we must, we must look out for this. It's not that by not grumbling we will, be, we will be made children of God. We are children of God. That is the truth. It's a reality. But as we live this way, we will be blameless. We will be innocent above reproach. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And so the contrast there, look at the contrast between blameless and innocent contrasted with crooked and twisted. That contrast, that juxtaposition, if you may, makes us shine as lights in the world. You may look at the lights, the emergency exit lights that are, that are there. Yes, you can see them right now, but if we were to switch off all the lights in here for a moment, they are that much brighter. You actually see there's almost like a red uh, lighting around the room. It feels like it's, it's such a big light. But right now, it's, until I pointed it out, I'm not sure if it was distracting you. It's, it's just there, right? It's just in the background. And that's the relationship between light and darkness. Light shines more brightly in the darkness. And, and we know this from our, from our headlights on our car, a flashlight. The light illuminates Another reality about a flashlight is that when you switch on a flashlight, you don't look into the bulb, right? When you switch on a flashlight, if you were to look into the bulb, what would happen? It's ironically blinding, but you use the flashlight to see what else is there. And as we see here, as you switch on the flashlight, as the Christian is brought to bear, it is God who gets the glory. We are not the end of the glory. When the light shines, it's not that we should look to ourselves or we should be expecting people to praise us and worship us, but our light should shine in such a way that we give God the glory. We give God the glory. And so as we shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we have the call of being a witness, of being salt and light, as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. We are a light on a hill. Uh, we are not to be hidden. Uh, let me just read those verses. Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 15 to 16. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your, light let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are not supposed to shine that we would be the end of the shining. People should look to God and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. But many times we are tempted we are tempted that when people maybe compliment us or see our growth, we, 
we forget to remind people why there has been that growth, that change. We are living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and we are called to be lights in the midst of this world. And so as we are on this journey as, as, as believers, being conformed more and more day by day to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we must remember the world which we live in. We must remember that we continue to struggle with our indwelling sin. But we must also remember that we have been called to be light in the midst of a wicked generation. That means that we must watch our life closely. It means that we must be intentional, not pretentious, but organically as we are being transformed. And even as our passage has shown, Paul didn't start with shining as lights in the world. He, he began with work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not backwards. It's as you work out your, your salvation, you will shine as lights in the world. But thirdly, remember the day of Christ. Remember the day of Christ. Look with me at verses 16 to 18. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We are to, we are to hold fast to the word of life. The scriptures, we must, as we walk through this world, as we face various temptations, as we seek to work out our salvation, <clears throat> excuse me, as we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we will have much opposition, as we see. We will have much opposition. There is opposition from within and without. We continue, as I've said, we struggle with our own flesh but we also struggle with the world, which is growing more and more hostile against believers. But we must not lose sight of the goal, of the day of Christ. We must hold fast to the word of life, even as other doctrines come our way, as so-called Christians turn away from the faith and add to scripture and, and, and become innovative and creative in places they should not be. We must hold fast to the word of life. We remember the disciples when Jesus asked them in, in John if they too wanted to leave him and he said, where else shall we go? In you alone are the words of eternal life. We must look to Jesus for life. We must feed on him daily. That is our source of comfort. That is our source of hope. That is our source of strength as we walk through this world, as we struggle, as we, as we look forward to the day of Christ. We must hold on to the word of life. I can't help but think of Pilgrim's Progress. 
and how Christian continues to hold on to his book, his cherished book, as he goes through the journey. He does not let it go. He continues to read it. So too, we must hold fast to the word of life because there alone do we have our comfort, do we have our strength. And so what Paul is saying here is that he encourages them to hold fast to the doctrine, the, the, the truth that he preached to them, that on the day of Christ, he may be proud that he didn't labor among them in vain. That is what he says in verse 16, that on the day of Christ, he may rejoice as he sees them there. And this should be our prayer too, as we, as we labor in the church, as we, as we encourage one another, we should also have this hope that on the day of Christ, we'll look around and we'll see our brothers and sisters in the Lord as we labor together. That we are not laboring in vain as we are growing together in Christ's likeness. But notice that this comes with a cost. We know that the Apostle Paul is in prison at the time and, and he says in verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What we have been talking about and what we have been describing is difficult. It is difficult to be a loving father. It is difficult to be a husband who loves sacrificially. It is difficult to be a wife to respect and love and honor her husband. To be a mother who labors day in and day out oftentimes feeling lonely in the midst of a crowd. It is difficult to be a young person and to seek to be faithful to God's word in the midst of so many philosophies and so many pressures of what is, what is cool, what is the in thing to do. We can get weary, but if we are to serve one another, it may feel like what the Apostle Paul was feeling. He was in prison and at this point he did not know if he would get out. But he has poured himself out for the sake of the gospel. He has sacrificed much, even as the Philippians have sacrificed much. They were persecuted for their faith, but they continued, they also continued to support the Apostle Paul in his ministry, though they weren't a large church. But the, the good news, the encouragement is that as we continue to labor in this way, as we continue to sacrifice, as we continue to, to put others first, we reflect Christ. But there's also encouragement because we look forward to the day of Christ in which we will all rejoice and be glad because we will see that our labors were not in vain. And so as we continue through this life as Christians, as we think about the ongoing work of sanctification in our lives, let us not lose heart but take hope because it is God who works in you both to will and to work out for his good pleasure. Take hope because though you live in this world, you can look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Take hope because you are not alone in this walk. 
but you have your brothers and sisters in Christ. And may God help us as pilgrims along this journey. Let us pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, we praise you and we worship you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you that you haven't left us as orphans in this world, but that you have given us the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who convicts us of sin, who reminds us of your word, who is the great comforter in difficulty and in trials and in moments of loneliness and sorrow. We thank you that unlike other religions of this world, we are not left to fend for ourselves. We are not left to figure out if we are saved, but you give us the assurance as the Holy Spirit works within us and he testifies with our soul that we have been saved. Won't you help us, Lord, in the day-to-day, in the moments that follow, to walk in obedience to you. And Lord, when we do fail, won't we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray and ask all this in Jesus Christ. Amen.